This episode of Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast, is intended for informational and entertainment purposes only. This episode of Cheat Codes was supported by Agios. Doctors of Mars 80 and Mike Callahan are employees of Agios Pharmaceuticals. What's up, Cheat Codes listeners? It's me, Dr. Z. And today, unfortunately, I am not joined by Dr. C, who had to emergently step out for some work. That being said, I have quite the guest with me on this episode. It's such a thrill to be joined by Dr. Mike DeBon. Dr. Mike DeBon is very well known to you warriors, the sickle cell community. We want to spend some time with Dr. DeBon going over how Mike DeBon became Mike DeBon. We want to talk a little bit about what he's looking forward to and how he looks at sickle cell in 2022. And we're going to go from there. For those of you who may not know, Dr. Mike DeBon is a professor of uh, pediatrics and medicine at the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. He's the vice chair of clinical research at Vanderbilt. He's the founder and director of the Vanderbilt Meharry Center of Excellence in Sickle Cell Disease out there in Nashville and is the J.C. Peterson Endowed Chair in Pediatrics. Dr. DeBon's CV covers innumerable accolades. That being said, I think his contribution to sickle cell disease is one that cannot be contained in a Word document or a CV. With that, Dr. DeBon, welcome to Cheat Codes. Thank you for that uh, wonderful introduction. I'm not really sure what you're talking about, but uh, I'm happy to be here. Ah, come on. You're being modest, but I, I appreciate it. Look, this is... Uh, you have always been somebody who I've admired in my early career in sickle cell disease. Just seeing how you approach work, seeing how you approach the disease. It's just such an honor to share the space with you. So thank you. I'm going to start right at the beginning, Dr. Debon. I want to hear a little bit about how this all started. I know that your undergrad was at Howard, and then you went to med school at Stanford. Walk me through a little bit about how sickle cell disease came onto your radar. How could it not be on my radar and aspire to be a physician to have an impact in the community in which I grew up in? Uh, that's probably a more appropriate question. I'm the, you know, son of Frank and Ever Lewis DeBond. My dad was a factory worker who, ten years or plus, going to junior college just for the sake of learning. Took the night shift at McDonnell Douglas and went to JUCO, a junior college throughout the St. Louis region. All three of them, and just was uh, peppered with the thirst of knowledge to share with his three children. My mom uh, was a, a teacher and loved to. Teach. She was a teacher's teacher. She loved to teach people how to teach and imparted that on us as a skill set that we share today. Uh, my brother is a teacher in Prince George's County. My sister was a teacher before she was uh, killed. It was her first job out of college. And, and then, obviously, although I get the title of being a physician scientist, what I take the most pride in is transferring the knowledge that I have gained to others to improve the life of children and adults with sickle cell disease. Amazing. So that's, uh, that's where it started and grew up in a tight-knit family. My aunt and uncle were literally three houses down, and my grandmother and grandfather were an integral part of my life. So I had the love of six adults until I left the house. And I was a very wealthy young man to have six adults celebrate every event in your life. <laughs> yeah, sure. As if you're the prince. It was a beautiful environment to be raised in. Amazing. So you allude to, the, to this idea that, of course, sickle cell disease hits, it hits close to home. So for you, it's something that is, is a very important. As I'm going through your CV, and I've heard this story from you before, early on in your training, you spent a little bit of time with particularly Wilms tumor or like an oncology yes. attention span. Tell me a little bit about that. That's quite interesting to me. Yeah, being at uh, Stanford and being at WashU, there were some, those are environments that are heavily weighted to merit over. And I wanted to be a physician scientist with a focus on sickle cell disease. But when I started my career, there were predominantly observational studies uh, being conducted in the clinical space in sickle cell disease. And no one program across the country had what I would say a research laboratory devoted to the translational or a clinical hypothesis-driven work. That was 87, 88, and 89. There were a few hot spots in the country, mm -hmm. Baltimore being one, Boston being others. But 
the most, a lot of the work was observational, just really defining the clinical history of the disease, of course, with the cooperative study for sickle cell disease. And in, in light of the fact that there was very few opportunities to learn the skill set required to be a R01-funded physician scientist, as a pediatric oncologist, I decided that I would lean heavily on the oncology side and focus on the skill set because obviously oncology has a much stronger research portfolio for clinical and translational research and made a decision to get a apply for and was awarded National Public Health Service scholarship for four years and they paid a year of uh, paid a year of uh, MPH program so I got that at Hopkins lived in Baltimore and then three years of research and so my funding from this source, and so I had to identify a research area that was commensurate with my funding, and so I was placed in the national, at the National Cancer Institute in the Genetic Epidemiology Branch, and I, I uh, pride my research on questions that I thought would uh, appeal to my strengths and, uh, and allow me to ask and answer questions that would uh, advance the care for children, specifically with overgrowth syndromes, back with Wiedemann syndrome, and, and the like. And so I learned a lot about multidisciplinary research and creating a team. And, but at the same time I was doing that, I was actually continued with the work that I started as a fellow at WashU in the two years prior. So I actually had two fellowships, one in pediatric hemoc and the other in epidemiology, funded by the U.S. Public Health Service. That's it's amazing. It's amazing. It's clear, clearly all you've done such a nice job of harmonizing your skill set into being as into sort of being as uh, what should I say here? You've harmonized it to create as much impact as possible, which is amazing. And I'm talking not only about the skill set acquired through formal training, but even being in an environment around teachers and things like that, your teaching style. You recently won uh, this mentorship award at ASH, which was one of my favorite moments of ASH ever. So clearly, you've really done a nice job of um, really cultivating the skill set and, and being impactful with it. I want to spend a little bit of time, I want to break this conversation into a few parts. The, the first one, of course, is the contributions in sickle cell disease that you've made around particularly the effects on the this podcast is really meant to have an audience of patient listeners and some of the nuance around the research that you've done with strokes particularly silent strokes is something that i feel like we should spend a little bit of time diving into tell us a little bit about how you started asking questions around what happens in the brain with sickle cell disease and 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 how you wanted to impact it yes yeah, so it's a very simple story my mom was a Montessori teacher in a public school in the city of St. Louis, which was and physically in an area that was 99% African-American. You couldn't ask for a more segregated region. Wow. If you moved to South Africa during apartheid, it would not have been as segregated as the region in which she, te- she taught wow. uh, elementary school students. And she took a lot of pride in her ability to reach students at all levels, and she had a Montessori classroom. And she had this young lady in her class uh, who had sickle cell disease. And so, as your Montessori style of education is very individualized. So it puts a lot of pressure on this teacher to ensure that the student had progressive learning at a pace that was commensurate with their learning style. And so my mom called me and said, as moms do, and you're working 80 hours a week, like, uh, son, uh, Yes, mom. I had this young lady in my classroom with sickle cell disease. Okay, mom. (laughs) And she has lost her milestones that I taught her. I said, what do you mean? I said, I taught her some skill sets, and she was very knowledgeable about them three months ago, but she can't remember what they were, and she can't follow through on what she previously was able to do in the classroom. I said, okay. Is she having any trouble in gym? Because this is a school where the teacher is the supervisor for physical ed and recess and whatnot. And and the answer was, no, she plays with everybody just fine. She can climb up on the jumbles gym just fine. I said, okay, and uh, let me think about it. And so I dug into the possibilities and I went back to my mom and said, what do you want me to do, mom? And she said, I want you to tell me why this happened. I want you to tell me if this happens again. And I want you to tell me uh, what uh, I can do to fix this problem. And so I looked into this uh, problem with all uh, degree of sincerity. 
and discovered that uh, there was almost no literature. And the literature that was available used the typical explanations of why black students don't do well in a classroom setting. Wow. Home environment, social economic, divorce, so forth and so on. I was like, oh, that's, that's not happening here. Right. And I happened to be at St. Louis Children's Hospital, Washington University School of Medicine, and we were participating in the Cooperative Study for Sickle Cell Disease, which is this, you know, it's basically the Framingham study for sickle cell disease. It's a longitudinal cohort of children and adults. They were studying the brain in children with sickle cell disease. MRI technology had just come out. And, and, and so knowledge was evolving. And I uh, did what we all do when we don't have resources. You, you learn how to hustle, yeah. different types of hustle. <laughs> and so I, I went out uh, to, uh, I was a fellow, and I went out to my colleagues and uh, put together a multidisciplinary team of a psychologist on the main campus because you couldn't get anybody from the host- children's hospital to do cognitive testing. This population doesn't show up for meetings. I mean, the whole litany of negative reasons why they can't uh, do cognitive testing. Identified a neurologist, uh, pediatric neurologist, uh, Tracy Glauser, who agreed to evaluate these children systematically. Identified a radiologist, uh, Bob McKinstry, who agreed to work with me to characterize the images of the brain. And uh, identified a, uh, a radiologist to do the TCDs. And then a neurologist, Michael Netzel, to evaluate these children as well. And so we put together a, I put together a multidisciplinary team as a fellow with just really a hope and a prayer and wow. an opportunity to work together as a team. And that was, was a little daunting because everybody was at least five years older than me, established, and I was the young kid on the block, but they all agreed to work with me. And that's how we started. And then lo and behold, uh, this child had a silent stroke. We had a repeat MRI that was done and showed it was silent stroke, although the actual MRI reading said no change, you know. Right. There was nothing going on. But in fact, this child had a silent stroke. And so we were able to systematically show the importance of a silent stroke. And then for a decade, I basically tried to craft a strategy where I was telling a story and each story had a chapter. And so very specific research questions that would ultimately lead to um, a feasibility trial and then the definitive SIT trial a, a decade after I started as a fellow. That's amazing. I, I just, I'm thinking about this, just knowing what it's like to be a fellow and to understand how people around you often feel about sickle cell disease and to do it when you did it. I can't imagine that this road was free of hurdles for you by any stretch of the imagination. You probably had quite a few hurdles in trying to con- construct this. Oh, I, had, I, it, I am well-versed in mistakes and people <laughs> saying no. And in fact, I've uh, learned to read the tea leaves yeah. and of who's going to be a good scientific partner and who's not. Yeah. And I have honed that skill. Yeah. So that basically at this stage of my career, maybe a little earlier, I basically say I'm not working with jerks and I'm not working with people who don't want to put the children first. Right. And and that means that we put ourselves second right. in terms of the research team and the strategy that we we put forth. And so that's that I learned a lot from that experience. Yeah. No, and it sounds like along the way, as you're developing that ability, you're you're you've really you identified some really good partners in this pursuit who you regularly then start publishing with, who you keep around you for quite some time. Like you found your tribe in that research sort of schema. Yeah, it was all built by one brick at a t- by craft and love mm-hmm. of the children. Mm-hmm. And so it's really not so much people who are my peers, but people who became my peers after they joined the lab and committed to a greater good than any one of us could do ourselves. And and so that's really what it was. Is it's not so much there was this cadre of folks outside of the team that really felt passionate about this hypothesis-driven approach to not only delivering the care for children and adults with sickle cell disease, but advancing the care. And so I've been very privileged to identify folks who want to spend time with me. Amazing. Amazing. So you've seen this 
this field, I, specifically I'm talking about now brain health and sickle cell disease. You've seen this evolve over the last few decades here in the United States, right? There's this conversation is happening quite a bit. You public consensus guidelines with a group of other experts around cerebrovascular issues in sickle cell disease just a few years back now. I want to get a sense from you about how these conversations are happening outside of the United States. What are the conversations around the brain and sickle cell disease in, for example, Africa, the Middle East, the Indian subcontinent? Yeah, if you put on a public health hat, mm-hmm. you, I'd have to say, where do most of the children with sickle cell disease live? And that's pretty simple. They live in sub-Saharan Africa. In fact, 50% of all children with sickle cell anemia are born in Nigeria. And so then you have to take a step back and say, if stroke is important to this teacher mm-hmm. for a child in her classroom and the mother who wants to see her child achieve their greatest potential, would that be any different in Nigeria, in Ghana, in Tanzania? Right. And the answer is no. Right. It's no different. And so that brought about a specific challenge for me. And it came at the right time in my career. It was a deliberate decision to focus on the bigger picture, to have a bigger impact. If you say you want to be an expert in sickle cell disease and you don't have a footprint in the region of the world that has the highest prevalence, then you might say you're an expert, but you're not having the impact on children that in the adult population. And so I wanted to meet that challenge and felt that as a team, we could do better than what had previously been done. So I'd love to dive into that just a little bit more. I want to hear about your first time going to Sub-Saharan Africa. Oh, yeah. My family, first time I went as a medical student. Yeah. And uh, my mom and my aunt, who was a teacher, and my grandfather, who was a, a teacher and then uh, became a counselor in high school in cities of, in the city high school in St. Louis, we all went to Senegal, Dakar, with another group of with other folks who were teachers. And uh, we stayed there for about two weeks. And it was a, a, a monumental trip for me because I could see the similarities between who I was at that time as a young man, young black man, mm-hmm. and people who were my age. Wow. And I could see many of the same mannerisms. The food was very similar to some of the food that we have at home that my grandmother cooked. And I could see the level of healthcare disparity. There were, there were literally uh, a French barracks that had been abandoned was a hospital. And women with cervical cancer wow. would be admitted to that hospital primarily to die. And there was no chemotherapy for them. And the families were so committed to their loved ones in the hospital, they were literally in the courtyard there to feed the person who they loved who was in this facility to die. And the requests were so meager. The requests were just equipment to perform a pap smear so they could catch the cervical cancers early. So I made a commitment at that point that I would come back, but I I couldn't do the tourist thing. In fact, it's kind of a a tug of war between my wife and I right now. I said, look, I'm not going to the continent to see some lions. Right. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I'm going to have a hard time relaxing going on safari when I know that there's an opportunity to improve someone else's life. So that's so it took me several iterations of going to Nigeria and Ghana and with my family, my daughter and my wife. And then I got invited to go to Nigeria a second time. And the deal was that I was going to be hosted by a buddy of mine from London who's actually born and raised in Nigeria named Baba Nusa. Sure. And I said, look, I'll do the dog and pony show for two weeks. I'm bringing my wife bring my daughter, and because of the experience in St. Louis where we bootstrapped our own camp for children with sickle cell disease, I'm talking about bootstrapped like old-fashioned, like every year is a hope and a prayer of whether or not we have a camp for children with sickle cell disease, and that's a whole nother story. And the arts and craft director were my, were my wife and my daughter. And so I said, look, I'll do the whole dog and pony show, show going to northern Nigeria, but at the end of this trip, you got to give me a weekend where we invite the girls from this state in Casina, Nigeria, to a uh, a retreat. Mm -hmm. And the ladies uh, will uh, host this retreat for these girls. And so I did that. And it turns out that at that retreat, 
the parents were all hovering over the girls on Saturday. So I thought I was going to have a whole weekend off. But my wife said, no, you need to come and hang out with us on Sunday and take care of the parents. So I came and took care of the parents on Sunday. And then during that visit, uh, I had the parents for about six and a half hours. So you can imagine what I was doing. I was basically doing the first three-month talk that we all give to families wow. of newborns about sickle cell disease. Sure. Families very hungry to find out everything they could absorb about sickle cell disease. And in the midst of that conversation, it turned out that one of the children in the camp uh, retreat had a uh, stroke, and nobody even knew what a stroke was. And so, in a long story very short, six of the 42 girls had strokes that were diagnosed on that day. A very sullen moment for us. Wow. And here I am, quote unquote, an expert in sickle cell disease and neurological injury. And I set up a camp where six of the 42 girls have a stroke. And then at some point you have to believe in grace and the ability of there being an opportunity to improve the lives of others. And so uh, the next day we sat down with the team and we made a matrix of what should we do to alleviate our lightness burden, where should we write our grant and submit it to, what should be the focus, primary stroke prevention versus secondary stroke prevention, and the like. So that's how we got started in northern Nigeria. And what, 11 years later, we finished the phase three randomized controlled trial on, to demonstrate the ability to prevent strokes in children with sickle cell anemia living in northern Nigeria. And we've also demonstrated the ability to prevent a stroke recurrence in children with pre-existing strokes. And both of those are randomized controlled trials. Amazing. Absolutely amazing story. When I talk to you, one of the things that comes across often is about building infrastructure and sustainability in the region if you're there. I'd like to hear a little bit about that from you. We go there, we do these studies. But you're also working very closely with the investigators that are going to be on the ground, that are going to stay on the ground once your team has left. What's clear to me uh, when you go there and you actually spend time uh, with the folks there, and I get as much fun as going to these locations in northern Nigeria as I do when I hang out with the folks that I went to college with at homecoming. There's a sense of a shared mission that we can do better for the community. And it's... uh, it's an unbelievable spiritual focus on doing what's best for the children. And I'll tell you a little bit about this in, in, in a tangible way where the team is really focused on doing what's best for the families. But the first challenge is poverty. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure people in America really understand what poverty looks like. And I can tell you, I didn't grow up in poverty. Mom being a teacher, Dad being a factory worker that often had three jobs. But this is a level of poverty that we, we have a hard time understanding. There's one clinic in uh, northern Nigeria in, in Kano referred to as Mutu Muhammad. I, I, if somebody has a clinic that has more children with sickle cell disease than this location in the world, let me know. Mm-hmm. This children sees anywhere between 150 to 200 children. It's now dropped a little bit to between 150 to 100. What? <laughs> Four days a week. Wow. Unbelievable. Four days a week, it's these children are seen by nurses. Wow. On the fifth day, the new diagnosis of children with sickle cell disease are seen by a single physician and anywhere between 35 to 50 new diagnoses. These are children who were not identified through the newborn screening, but identified through symptoms of uh, that uh, provide the manifestations of sickle cell disease and then getting a laboratory diagnosis. This Location has over 16,000 children with sickle cell disease. Mm. And until recently, they were just, they, until recently, they're just taking vitals. Wow. Wow. Okay, so, wow. so and, and then when you talk to the mom about, okay, your child has a fever, they need to go and get the following medication, and the mother looks at you and says, with what? I don't have any money. We're talking about a dollar's worth of medication. And this is a location where uh, a CBC is $3. Oh, man. So when you understand that challenge and you say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to helicopter in here and I'm going to change the world, and then you leave and helicopter out, you're left with a population that can't afford the treatment that you provided. Right. And so I was hypersensitive to this level of disconnect. And worked very early on with the first feasibility trial, referred to as SPEN, single-on trial, and then the randomized control trial, referred to as 
spring for, sec- for primary stroke prevention and to work with the government officials and to explain to them this challenge and to explain to them the challenge in a fashion that appealed to their humanity, that we have a chance to prevent strokes in children with sickle cell anemia and that this would be life-changing for these children. And then I was able to identify a, a pharmaceutical company in Nigeria and I was able to meet the CEO of this pharmaceutical company. And um, he's in his 80s. He looked like he's in his wow. 60s. Oh, man. Okay. And okay. he was a big guy. He was probably 6'5". Yeah. And just full of a smile. And he was just tickled Pete that I was approaching him. Yeah. And he had already made the decision a decade ago to produce hydroxyurea and produce it below cost. Mm. Amazing. 15 cents for a 500 milligram capsule of hydroxyurea, 15 cents. And yet, despite being so inexpensive, many of the families cannot afford that. So I was able to uh, inform the leadership of the humanitarian need and then provide a solution where they could buy the drug hydroxyurea from their own, from a pharmacy in their own country that was willing to subsidize the medication specifically for Nigerians and subsidize the cost, that is. Mm -hmm. And and the end result of fast forward about five years is that three states in northern Nigeria that are equivalent to about 40,000 children. So more more children live in these three states than the entire United States. Mm -hmm. If you have an abnormal TCD, if you have a stroke or severe sickle cell disease, the state provides those children hydroxyurea free of charge. Wow, wow. So that's on the practical point, because in, in, the, in the end, it's more about the children. But then there's the other component, which is the mentees. We have this wonderful research team, and so we have been able to take advantage of the intellectual uh, richness of the institution that I work at, Vanderbilt. Mm-hmm. And I have several colleagues. One's a world-class neurologist, Ed Trevathan. He just set up a, two trials to treat uh, childhood with capacity building. And then Mukhtar Lu is uh, another one of my colleagues. He's actually from Kano. Mm-hmm. And he has uh, several grants that have been funded to build capacity. And then, of course, I have several mentees that have received funding uh, from either the NIH or ASH as a mentored award to start their own intellectual trajectory independent of my own. That's just exceptional. It's um, truly a blueprint for, for anybody who's trying to do this kind of work. It's just staggering. I think even with your description of the immensity of the problem and the immensity of the poverty, it's probably still difficult for people to grasp really what that means. I don't know, on a typical sickle cell clinic day, how many patients are seen in the United States, for example? Yeah, I I have no idea. Because I'm not in a, because my salary is not dependent on how many patients I see, Right. I typically take 30 minutes for every patient Right. and an hour for a new patient. Right. And a busy day for me is 12 patients. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, so, so just thinking about 100 or 150 patients in a day with sickle cell disease, that's just mind-boggling. Now, oh, lo- me, yeah, please tell me. I would just say it's, it's hard to have that capacity. You really have to develop a skill set. And I guess one of the follow-up questions to that, Dr. Devon, is like, even with that capacity, are they seeing everyone that needs to be seen? No way. There's no way. Because A, you have to come into the city. Transportation is challenging. Right. B, you have to come in early because of the way they've set up their clinics. They start showing up at 7 to be seen at 9, and they're not done by 1. Now they're afternoon prayer, and then these are women because they're nurses, so they got a home to take care of. Right, right. And so this is, is a, these are professional women. In fact, several of the women bring their children with them and are breastfeeding in between seeing the children that they are providing the nurse care. Wow. The nursing care, too. Oh, wow. Uh, But the spirit of care for these children and the families is beyond description. I'll just give you two brief examples. Please. The first one is uh, there's a woman who had two children in the trial for uh, primary stroke prevention. Her husband died. And the team had a room that was about the size of a dorm room. Okay, maybe 12 by 12 or something like that, just enough to put two twin beds in. And so this is where we were conducting 
this was the epicenter of the trial at this at one of the three sites for the Supreme Trial, the Primary Stroke Prevention Randomized Control Trial. And so they, being the research staff at this hospital, made a decision that if this mother did not have any financial support, the whole family would be on the street. So they all pinched in on their salaries, which were meager, to create a custodian position for the mother to be environmental service. I don't know how you describe environmental service for one room. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> they provided enough support for her so that she was not homeless. And that was spontaneous. When I was struggling to get the approval for the hydroxyurea by the state government in uh, Kano, the team said, any child with an abnormal TCD, we will pay for the hydroxyurea. Wow. Wow. So it, it's a level of commitment to the community that is uh, unparalleled as far as I have experienced in my career as a clinical investigator. That's just amazing. That's just amazing. For the benefit of the warriors who may be listening to this, I'm going to prompt you with a question that can lead us into a discussion around spring. Is some hydroxyurea better than no hydroxyurea in these resource cap settings? That's a loaded question yeah, so, for you, Dr. Devon. Yeah, these are loaded, these are loaded <laughs> questions. It is, it's one of those things that, you know, I wish I could take you to the woodshed on because this is a loaded question. I know this is a loaded question. I think the reality is yeah. that, you know, we can sit here in our high-income country, turn on our air condition, complain about the gas going from $3 to $4 to $5. Uh, but most of us who are doing this kind of yickety-yak uh, don't have to worry about the first meal. Right. Okay. And they don't have to worry about, oh, a CBC is three days of my wages. So I work five days a week and three days of my wages is going to go to a CBC. Mm-hmm. For the doctor to say everything looks good. The practical nature of what we do in the United States mm-hmm. doesn't mean it's the right thing for people to do in Kano, Nigeria. And what we have to do is reverse the script. We have to say, what's the right thing for you? you all to do in Nigeria. Let's listen. Let's hear what you have to tell me as the provider for 16,000 children with sickle cell disease, as the doc who's going, to be, who's going to see these children when they get sick. Let's talk about what's going to work for you. Oh, okay, what's going to work for me is, this is their, this is their from, talk to me. Dr. Bond, we're not doing MTD. Why not? That's, my buddies say that's the best way to go. We're not doing MTD. Mm-hmm. They can't afford it. Mm-hmm. I can't even get patients to the clinic without taking money out of my pocket to get them home, let alone pay for a CBC. Okay, let's look at the evidence. So just for the viewers, MTD means maximum tolerated dose, right? So the highest dose dose you can get of hydroxyurea that your body can tolerate. And and so there was sufficient, when you scoured the literature and lined up all the articles that have ever been published, that others had made the same statement, specifically in India and in Costa Rica. They had used low dose, 10 milligrams per kilogram of hydroxyurea. And they had seen the benefit in before and after studies. And the question, and then in the baby hug study, randomized controlled trial with uh, Winfred Wong as the first author showing the benefit of hydroxyurea as a fixed dose, 20 milligrams per kilogram per day, published in Lancet, they showed that 20 milligrams per kilogram per day was not associated with an excessive model suppression and showed a clear benefit in decreasing vasoclusive episodes. So when you look at the literature and you present this back to the Nigerian pediatricians, we say, yeah, we think it's reasonable to go with the 20 versus 10. Because if our government is going to pay for this medication, then we're going to be able to treat twice as many children if the 10 is effective. Absolutely. Because we know our families can't afford this, even at 15 cents a day. Wow. And they can't afford the monitoring for the laboratory costs. Well, you come in every two weeks to get a CBC, and then you get an MTD, and the child is growing, so you're constantly monitoring the dose, and then you have toxicity with myelosuppression. They said, Dr. DeBond, you can do that in the United States, and they had been here long uh, often enough to see how we were practicing. But don't even come to me with that conversation. Mm -hmm. So that's the reality. Wow. Wow. Which, just hats off to you. So from 2016 to 2018, the team on the ground in Nigeria with oversight from your team enrolls 220 patients into the spring trial, which is 
amazing. It's a, it's no small feat to to have this type of a trial happen. And I think it's a huge service to the people there that you approached this the way you did and came up with the results that you did. So thank you. Thank you for, for all of that. Oh, they did the work. I didn't chance to the, it's a little bit like the the ballers on the field, and they win and lose based on their performance. And right. then you have some general manager yeah. who pulls the strings from from somewhere <laughs> in his luxury box. So they're doing the work. I didn't give one informed consent. They did all the work, and they get all the credit. I quite like the analogy around the same sort of around the same study. I want to talk a little bit about the difference between compliance in sub-Saharan Africa and where you are currently. Talk a little bit about. Yeah, so. I, that's a whole nother discussion bottle, okay? because <laughs> the, the reality is that there's this perception that uh, black folks are not, and people make their careers on this, black folks are not interested in clinical trials and they won't be adherent and all this kind of stuff. And th- the fact is that it's just simply not true. Mm-hmm. It's a myth. Mm-hmm. And in the SIT trial, the silent infarct transfusion trial, the hypothesis was that regular blood transfusion, that meant monthly for three years, would have a decrease in the rate of new cerebral infarcts or avert strokes when compared to observation. And so in this trial, uh, families had to show up monthly for three years. They had to have to get transfusions. They had to have three MRIs, two neurology examinations, two or three actual cognitive evaluations. And when you looked at this population of 196 children, half of which were randomized to uh, randomly allocated transfusions, the other to observation, the adherence rate was over 85% that completed all of the parameters I just described. Wow. This wow. is across the United States. Wow. Europe and, North, and Canada. So this idea that, quote-unquote, black folks, specifically poor black folks, the per capita household income was $8,000 mm. per person. Mm-hmm. That was the mean. Wow. So, I mean, think about living on that amount of money as a family of three. You're living on less than $25,000. Yeah. And yet, you make a clinic visit every month to have your child transfused, which you know is not a trivial exercise. Right. So, when you come into the process with that level of confidence, then you just have to be sensitive to what will transfer in northern Nigeria. So, we spend an inordinate amount of time educating our families about what hydroxyurea does for the body, what the toxicities are, what the benefits are, what the risks are, and how we believe this drug will help their child. We present we presented a handbook in English and in Hausa, their language. Uh, families were not coerced. In fact, some families didn't end up enrolling in the trial because they thought it was too good to be true. And then once they were in the trial, we paid attention to every detail of those children, even to the point it is a death is a high rate of frequency in children who live in sub-Saharan Africa, in, whether they're in the trial or not. And so we made sure that every child that died, that uh, there was a member of the team that showed up. Oh, man. And that we acknowledged the death of every child. Oh, wow. Wow. In, in a formal fashion. That is amazing. So we really focused on putting the family and the child first. Right. And so that's the approach that I've learned. That's the approach that I would want to be introduced to a trial. That is so refreshing. Somebody asked me to participate. That is so refreshing. Yeah. That is so refreshing. And that's the philosophy of the team. It's the philosophy of the team. They're the ones to do the work. That is remarkable. And we work hard. Yeah, of course. We met. We meet twice a week of for course. an hour for a decade. Wow. 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 With two levels of discussions. One for the research team, the actual people who call the families, Make sure they show up for their appointment, enter the data, and the the investigators. Amazing. So I'm going to be mindful of time here. I know we have just a few more minutes here. Really quickly, before we let you go, I can't let you go without talking a little bit about mentorship. Your track record in mentorship is unreal, Dr. Devon. The amount of the way your diaspora has spread within sickle cell, hematology, not even sickle cell, a coag, thrombosis. You have all sorts of mentees, not in, in the United States only, and you had the first African participant in CRTI. Um, talk a little bit about, I'd love to hear a little bit about your approach to mentorship. 
Wow. Uh, yeah. First of all, I love to teach. I love to see people learn and then teach me. And there's this perception that in mentoring that this is one-way street. But in fact, it's bi-directional. That's the real secret, is that I uh, enjoy learning, and I enjoy having people that are on the team who will push me to be a better physician, to be a better teacher, to be a better person. And, and so that's really, to sum it up, I am enjoying watching the transition where my role on their project is, hey, guess what? I just got my R01. Amazing. <laughs> From the earlier part of where do I go for my residency to do my research. Same person. I started off as a medical student in my lab, took a year out of medical school to work with me. Now he's uh, two R01s in and uh, he's tenured at a major medical school. Or someone else who started as a fellow and has an endowed professorship at another medical school, totally focused on sickle cell disease. So that's, that's, I am professionally overjoyed. Nothing is sweeter to me than to see them carry on this tradition of providing family-oriented care in a thoughtful way to children and adults with sickle cell disease. That is just amazing. Dr. Debon, I could talk to you all day, but I know how busy you are. What I like to end with is a lightning round of non-academic questions. It'll sure, take us about 30 seconds. You ready? Okay. All right, here we go. Do you prefer texting or talking? Talking. What's your favorite day of the week? Sunday. What's the last song you listened to? Great question. The answer is my first song by Jay-Z, the Black Album, 2003. I listen to that song routinely. Keeps me humble, keeps me hungry, keeps me focused. I love it. I love it. A uh, few more here. What's your favorite place to travel? With my wife or without my wife? So without <laughs> my wife, my favorite place to travel is the continent of Africa because of the people and the relationships there. With my wife, wherever she wants to go. Okay. It doesn't matter. Awesome. Awesome. Tea or coffee? Both. What's your favorite type of muffin? I stay away from the carbs. Look at you. And that ends our lightning round. Dr. Bond, I just want to say thank you once again for making time for Cheat Codes. It is such a pleasure. And you are welcome back anytime you want to complete this conversation. I owe you dinner. Happy to sit down and chew the fat and um, <laughs> drink a good bottle of Brunello. Anytime. Take care now, Dr. Debon. You too. What's up, Cheat Codes listeners? It's me, Dr. Z, and we've got a very special segment for you today. You've heard us interview some of our physician legends of sickle cell, but today we're introducing a new segment, something we call patient legends of sickle cell. I'd like to welcome back a Cheat Codes alumni, Ms. Shamanika Wiggins. Shamanika is a sickle cell warrior and a digital advocate. If you're in the community, there's no chance that you don't know who Shamanika Wiggins is. She is an extraordinary, extraordinary hero of sickle cell disease. Amy Bord, one of our producers on Cheat Codes, interviewed Shamanika, and we're going to play that interview for you right now. Hello, my name is Shamanika Wiggins, and I am connected to the sickle cell community because I am an adult living with sickle cell. I have sickle cell SS, and I'm also a patient advocate who is currently on staff at the Sickle Cell Community Consortium. So I am here with sickle cell patient and advocate, Shamanika Wiggins. Thank you so much for joining us today. And you're back on the podcast. This is your second time on Cheat Codes? Yes, this is my second time. And thanks for having me. I'm happy to be back again. Ooh, me too, me too. Tell the listeners when you were diagnosed with sickle cell. So I was diagnosed with sickle cell at six weeks of age. So my mom has known my entire life that I've had sickle cell. What were some of your memories um, of those early years of your childhood? As a kid, some of my early memories, I just remember a lot of time spent in the hospital. I remember taking penicillin every day. That was a challenge and a struggle, and I would fight my family on it because <laughs> it's nasty. If you've ever taken penicillin, it stinks, and it's nasty. They finally, one of my aunts, she would crush it and put it in juice. That was the only way. That became the easiest way for me to take it. 
And I just knew at an early age that I was slightly different from other kids because of being in pain mm-hmm. or and going to the hospital. But for the most part, I feel like I had a normal childhood aside from frequent visits to the hospital. <laughs> what was your scariest moment with your sickle cell disease? As a child or as an adult? Like overall? Or I what? think overall. <laughs> so my scariest moment with sickle cell disease was when I was 20 years old in college. I attended Texas Tech, which is in Lubbock, Texas. And I was misdiagnosed and mistreated for the flu. I don't know how that happened because I was never tested for the flu and I didn't have any flu symptoms. But um, they overtransfused me with fluids, which flooded my lungs and triggered a severe pneumonia. And I ended up spending time in the ICU intubated because I flatlined a couple of times as a result of that. And My mom had to fly in, and that is the scariest thing I can remember experiencing with sickle cell because it could have been avoided. It happened so quick and so suddenly, and it was touch and go for a moment there. And it could have been avoided. That's the thing. That's like the kicker. I was in college. My friends took me to the ER. They stayed with me through the ER wait and me getting treated in the ER. But once it was determined that I would be admitted, my friends left. And when I got on the floor, I asked the nurse, why was I getting so many bags of fluids? And the nurse told me, you have the flu and we have to keep you hydrated. Mm. And I said, no, ma'am, I don't have the flu. I wasn't tested for the flu. And she said, that's what the doctor ordered. And that's what I'm going to do. And I thought I fell asleep because of my pain meds. But in all actuality, I was coding and not falling asleep. And yeah, she didn't listen to me or even take the time to double check my charts. She just told me what she was going to do because of the doctor's orders. You are a fierce advocate in the sickle cell disease community. Did that moment spark your self-advocacy warrior-ness? <laughs> Actually, it didn't. At that age, I thought I knew a lot about sickle cell, but mm. compared to what I know now, I uh. didn't. I think it scared me more than anything. Oh. I actually had, I suffered with P- PTSD because I was scared to drive past that hospital after that. I think me and my mom both were just happy that I survived it and that the team who ultimately took care of me were able to keep me here and yeah. get me back to normal. I actually didn't start advocacy on the level that I do it now until 2014. And this when I was 20, was like in 08, 09. Okay. So, yeah. What have you found that helps cope with your sickle cell? One thing that helps coping with sickle cell is talking about it, Mm. especially and being open and honest about it with the people around you, being honest with yourself and accepting the fact that you have sickle cell, that Mm -hmm. at times you have to pace yourself, Mm -hmm. at times you might miss things, just having a realistic outlook with the illness because some of us feel like we can do everything and we'll push through everything but once I realized that I can't do everything and it's that it's okay to be honest that helps a lot and also just knowing your triggers and pacing yourself and keeping up with your doctor's appointments Mm -hmm. and taking your medication the basic stuff that is sometimes hard for people to do. Did you have a personal experience with intracranial hemorrhage with a stroke? Yes. Ooh, tell me that story. (laughs) So I actually have two stories. I had my first stroke, and it was an overt stroke at the age of three, actually. This is something I'm glad I don't remember, but it was very traumatic for my mom. At the age of three, I was in the hospital getting treated for a normal sickle cell crisis. I'm so glad. I'm so glad you're with us. <laughs> I'm so glad I'm with you too. <laughs> <laughs> what was your recovery like? So I spent some time in the hospital. They had to do some occupational therapy, some cognitive therapy because my memory was a little shaky for like my short term memory was a little shaky afterwards. I believe 
So I'm almost 33 now, so I don't remember everything. It was a certain medication that I had to get, but I don't remember. And I believe I may have gotten a blood transfusion or they may have considered a blood transfusion. But it was just more time in the hospital and a lot of extra screening and having the cognitive therapy and the occupational therapy and and rest Yeah, <laughs> for yeah. the most part. Yeah. How has your experience with your sickle cell made you the mother that you are today? So I think just about anyone with sickle cell is a very strong and resilient person. But before I was a mom, it was easier to give in to the illness or feel like, oh, I don't have to push hard or have more negative thoughts of not like of giving up. But once you become a parent, those thoughts become, for me, I, I can't even think about giving up or not being here. So having my children only pushes me to strive harder, to be healthier, to take care of myself and to continue to be here with, with in the world, in the world of the living, the land of the living. And they motivate me to continue to do the things that I do to be a positive person because you always want to be a good role model for your children. And my daughter, she's proud of everything mm-hmm. I do in the sickle cell community. She gets to brag about the things I do through advocacy. I usually would do career day at her school but since COVID we can't go into the school anymore so my daughter seeing me do everything that I do in the name of sickle cell advocacy the Mm -hmm. speaking the helping run events it really pushes her to want to be a leader as well so that's basically my daughter and now son are just my biggest motivation to Mm -hmm. keep going You are a powerful advocate uh, in the sickle cell warrior community. Tell me a little bit more um, about Bold Lips for Sickle Cell, which is the best advocacy name I think I've ever heard. (laughs) It's awesome. Like I said, I started advocacy more in 2014. And initially I started as just a person on Instagram sharing about sickle cell. Mm. And then the ice bucket challenge started, which the whole world was doing. But for people who are familiar with sickle cell, that a person with sickle cell shouldn't dump ice cold water on themselves because it can trigger a sickle cell crisis. Extreme cold can trigger a sickle cell crisis. But not only that, the sickle cell community felt, wow, this illness that doesn't affect as many people is getting all this recognition. I wonder if we can do a challenge to get us recognition. So somebody posted like, hey, somebody, everybody think of challenge ideas and share it. And then we'll pick the one to do. My idea was Bold Lips for Sickle Cell, which was originally a challenge on social media that challenged people to put on their boldest lipstick color and post a selfie to encourage people to be bold and speak up about sickle cell. And I didn't think much of it. It was just my idea and I shared it and I didn't even assume people would like it, but people did like it. And it led to me meeting my former business partner and uh, co-founder of Boldest for Sickle Cell, Joelle Darbonet. And we stormed the, the country and had everybody putting on lipstick. And that challenge led to so many bigger advocacy opportunities. That year, we were invited to the SCDAA National Convention to share. Our topic was how to use social media to create a platform. And our room was packed. It was standing room only. And and that's when I think the, the two of us realized that we can really make a difference with Bolus for Sickle Cell. And for the five years that I was the CEO and worked as um, the founder and CEO of Boldest for Sickle Cell, I can say that we did make a big difference in the sickle cell community and we inspired a lot of people. It felt weird when you meet people who are so excited to meet you like you're a celebrity and tell you how they, you yourself motivated them. It's a feeling that 
I don't take lightly and that, like I said back then, that I'm forever grateful for. Because when you live with an illness, you really do need something that you can look forward to or something that encourages you or inspires you. And that challenge got a lot of women starting to wear makeup and lipstick and dressing themselves up. So not only did it make people feel better, it encouraged them to look better as well. What, to close, what are some words of wisdom for warriors that might be listening that are thinking about getting involved in advocacy or even social media awareness just with their own community? I feel like if you are thinking about it, just do it. Like I said, I started on Instagram sharing facts about sickle cell and sharing tips that I do for my sickle cell. And that got me a lot of followers and a lot of friends who are still my friends today. And Also, look and see if there are organizations in your area. I know the Sickle Cell Community Consortium, we partner with organizations, but as well as independent patient advocates such as myself. So there are organizations out there that will help you nurture your advocacy career and give you opportunities to speak or to be on ad boards or to attend events or help host events. So If you want to do it, just put it out in the atmosphere, put it out there. And I feel like the right people will find you or you will find the right people. And it's easy as that. That's how that's literally how my journey started, just putting it out into the atmosphere. So if you are thinking about it and want to do it, just do it. Just get started. And don't let, you know, sales stop you or you thinking, oh, but I'm sick and this and that. I've done uh, so much stuff from a hospital room. Don't let the illness stop you. I like to tell people that we can do whatever we want to do. We might have to do it differently and it might take a little longer, but we can do it. So don't let sickle sales stop you. Shamanika, where can warriors find you on social? So I'm on Facebook and it's just Shamanica Wiggins, S-H-A Monica Wiggins. And I'm on Instagram as well. And it's the.shamanica.wiggins. And um, on LinkedIn, it's Shamanica Wiggins. And Twitter is my only social media with a different name. And it's sham underscore on underscore you. Like shame on you, but sham on you. And yeah, I'm on Facebook and most active on Facebook. Oh, I also have a TikTok account and it's the dot Shamanica Wiggins as well. But I'm not that familiar with TikTok yet. <laughs> <laughs> is there actually this is a great follow-up question. Is there some sickle cell advocacy going on TikTok or that's like kind of a slow roll? Actually, there is. I have quite a few people that I follow and as well follow me that their all of their content is uh, based around sickle cell. Some mm. of them make jokes to lighten, like, you know, yeah. there are things, when you have this illness, you almost, all of us almost always have a dark sense of humor. <laughs> you kind of got to <laughs> laugh at the, you have to. the ugly parts of sickle cell, like the long waits in the hospital or waiting on your meds or people asking how long have you had the illness. So mm-hmm. there are people on on TikTok that make funny videos. There are people that make informative videos. There are people that share their journeys. It's one lady I follow who recently had a hip replacement. So she's been sharing that entire journey on TikTok. Mm-hmm. So it is on there. I just haven't mastered TikTok yet. So <laughs> if you want to interact with me the most, I'm on Facebook. <laughs> That's good to know. We'll have all of those uh, social media handles in the program notes, as well as a link to the consortium so you can check out their awareness and their resources. Shamanika, thank you so much for um, coming back on She Codes, and I'm sure we'll have you back again. Thanks so much for having me. As always, it's been a pleasure. You know, I usually do these uh, outros with Dr. C, so it feels a little strange that I'm doing this one by myself. But I've got to say, I I think this conversation with Dr. Michael Debon has left me feeling refreshed. I am at a point where knowing that there are people like him working behind the scenes to make sickle cell disease better for not only people in Nashville or Detroit, but in Kano, Nigeria, in Sub-Saharan Africa, it's everything. It's why we do what we do. And um, 
I just feel immensely proud that I got to share the last 45 minutes with him. I know he disputes the title of a legend, but somebody with this track record and this approach to research and sickle cell disease, perhaps the word legend is not even enough. I'd also like to thank our patient legend, Shamanika Wiggins, for her outstanding work within the community. We'll link up all of her social media in the show notes. Make sure you check that out. That being said, Cheat Codes listeners, for all of you out there who are listening to this and think that they know somebody who may benefit from hearing Cheat Codes and learning more about sickle cell disease, please subscribe to this podcast, share it, and then follow me at Dr. Z Sickle Cell. And you can follow Dr. C at Imagineer. And with that, We'll see you next time. Peace.